The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Thanks, Casey and Liz, uh, for the scripture reading, and good morning. My name is Ben Hooper. I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we're glad that you're with us as we are reading through and, and studying Ecclesiastes and seeing how uh, kind of a different book offers us uh, a view of life uh, that is honest, uh, beautifully honest, uh, and also leads us to ask questions of things in our life. And this morning, I want to start with uh, a story from uh, the movie, The Chariots of Fire. It's about uh, a missionary named Eric uh, Little, who uh, becomes this Olympic runner. And there are many uh, deep and and quotable and and notable uh, scenes and lines in the movie. And this morning, I want to talk about one from that actually doesn't come from the main character, Eric Little, but it comes from his opponent. It comes from a man named Harold Abrams, and Harold Abrams uh, has um, not just kind of wandered into this Olympic uh, season and Olympic time um, like Eric Little has. He's actually been training for it. He's lived strictly for the Olympics. He is desired to win and win and win, and he's worked and worked and worked so that he can win And he has this sobering uh, kind of scene towards the end of the movie uh, when he's uh, in the Olympics and he's in between races. And it's this scene that takes place. He's getting ready for a a race and he's getting massaged and he's talking uh, to Eric Little. And he says this to his opponent who has uh, continually beat him. He says this, he says, uh, you're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That is your secret, contentment. I am 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. I'm scared. And he says that he's, he's labored so much for the Olympics and he says, for what? For what? Why has he labored so much? And he says this. He powerfully says, honestly says, And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor, uh, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Uh, But will I? Uh, Four feet wide, a lane, and 10 seconds to justify his whole existence. Harold Abrams is talking about the thing that he has longed to do and worked to do and strived to accomplish. He's saying, even if I get that, will my personhood, will my existence be justified? Will I warrant actually the idea of being content if I win? And we have to ask ourselves a similar question in the light of Harold Abrams. What is the four foot wide lane? What is the 10 seconds that we use and ask to serve us as a way to justify our existence? 
And maybe for, for teachers, it's 20 students and a school year. Maybe for salesmen, it's a desk with a list of cold calls trying to make sure you're known for what you accomplish and what you bring in. Maybe for, uh, for financial advisors, you're given a portfolio of assets and a volatile market and said, make, and said to make much of this. Four feet, 10 seconds to justify our existence. And we could go on and on of lists that your job and vocation looks like to, to justify ourselves in our work. But we have to point out this, that, that, we, that we understandably use our work to find existential meaning. What we do, we, we want to find meaning in and purpose in. And yet, at the same time, we understandably find ourselves with this kind of void feeling of, is my work really meaningful? Does my work really matter? What I do for a job, why? Why? Everyone has a relationship with work. You could work too little. You could have too much work. You could have works that you work in a job that you love. You could have a, a job that you hate and loathe. Everyone has some kind of relationship with work. And so this morning, these words are not for uh, a quick fix, right? It's not saying to workaholics, just work less and it'll be okay. It's not saying to maybe uh, those who struggle with uh, lighting a fire and getting excited about work to just work more and it'll be okay. This passage is telling us we have to discover the true meaning of work and place it in its right context and purpose. Because if not, we will be like this person in Ecclesiastes, like this writer. And so uh, in order to do so, we have to be honest with our work, just like this uh, preacher who is in this passage talking is honest about his work. In order for there to be transformation and actually experience uh, really sinking our teeth in what our work does for us and to us and serves the purpose of, we have to ask hard questions of our labor, our toil, our work, our vocations, our jobs. And so uh, this morning, um, we'll look at three things. We'll look first at the, the strain of work. Second, the story of work. And third, the beauty of work, as we really do see what the Bible says about our nine to fives and the placement of it and the things we do for a paycheck. So with that in mind, let's pray as we look at God's word. Lord, we um, can look at our resumes and say, um, I enjoyed this part of my life. Those, those few months and years I was there and, and these other months and years I was at another job, it really felt terrible. It took more from me than it gave to me. And so, Lord, as we look at our resume, the things that make up uh, the time and years of our lives, uh, may we understand and come to an understanding that there is purpose in it because you are in it. So this day, as we all have different vocations and different jobs, illumine the idea that you're up to something even in our jobs and vocations. We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. So first, uh, the strain of work. Uh, the strain of work. This preacher uh, is talking about the different things in his life that he has uh, tried to find meaning in. He's asked for wisdom and understanding, and he said it's all vanity. It's hevel, the word in Hebrew, which means vapor, meaningless, a smoke. Right? You try to grab it and you can't. It's hevel. And he says, I've done it with pleasure. I've tried to, to seek meaning in life and fulfillment and pleasure. Uh, I've had all my fantasies come true, and yet... It's hevel. It's smoke. It's vapor. We can't grab it. And this morning, he talks about his work. It's hevel. It's meaningless. It's a, it's, a, it's a vapor. He's embittered with life because he strived to find meaning in his work. And he says this in verses 17. He says, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil, which I toil under uh, the sun. Life is miserable for him because he realized work is just not fulfilling. And how often do our uh, lives uh, resemble the satisfaction that we get or the dissatisfaction, the lack of satisfaction that we uh, don't have from our work? How much does our nine to five spill over into the other hours of our day and our lives? that actually our jobs take more from us than it gives to us. And he goes on to say why he's so dissatisfied, why work is hevel, why it's vapor, why it's smoke, why it's meaningless. He says, thankfully, he explains it. And here's what he says in verses 18 through 21. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to another man who will come after me who does not know whether uh, he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master for, which, for all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned uh, about and gave my heart up to despair over all my toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. The writer of in, in this passage is saying, here's why I have hated my work and found it meaningless. It's because everything that I do cannot outlive death. Everything I do uh, will be passed on to someone else who knows if they're going to be wise, who knows if they're going to be a fool. Everything that I have accomplished will be passed on because I cannot take it with me, right? Denzel Washington said, there's no U-Haul behind a hearse. Everything that we do will be passed on to the next generation. And who knows if they're going to even enjoy it or realize how good it is or if they're just going to outdo the work that we've done. Right, right. The medical discoveries will only be outdone. The, the buildings will only be uh, torn down and, and built even bigger and taller and, and different in style. The, the money we make will only um, be experienced and enjoyed by the people after us and made more money off of, or maybe uh, they'll lose it all. Death is the great equalizer, and because of that, he looks at his work and he says, it's meaningless. Because someone's going to enjoy it, my accomplishments, more than even I do in my life. 
So in the macro sense, he zooms out and he says, wait a second, death is gonna, is gonna take me. Therefore, my work doesn't matter. But also his cynicism goes to the day in and day out because he goes on and says in verse 22 and 23, he says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his, works, his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest for also, this also is vanity. And what he's saying is because of the macro sense, because he won't even be able to enjoy it, enjoy it forever and, and because it'll be passed on to someone else and maybe they'll uh, make it better or even maybe they'll just uh, throw it in the garbage. Because the macro doesn't matter, the micro doesn't matter to him. The small things doesn't matter to him. The day in and day out, he's saying it's worthless. Why? Why? And actually, this was almost um, uh, foreshadowing what will happen. This is probably Solomon writing, and Solomon was wise and, and, and powerful, and, and uh, he got life. He understood it. And because he was wise and powerful and he knew how things worked, he had a great mind, he uh, was the one that uh, built the temple and constructed a great kingdom as he led his people. And just one generation later, his son will undo all of his work. His son, Rehoboam, will, will um, make many, many, many mistakes. Many mistakes. And it's all going to fall through his fingertips, right? The foreshadowing of what the next generation does with our work shows, actually, it's very sobering. Uh, my grandfather, um, I've talked about him before, uh, he was an amazing man. He was amazing. And he was also an amazing um, football coach. He's in the National Hall of Fame. And uh, he's known all around Nashville where he coached at many schools uh, for who he was, but also what he did with teams. And one of the schools he coached at, uh, they named the stadium after him. They had this great big unveiling and they, his name is on the scoreboard. And as you know, um, just three months ago, uh, almost two years after he died, uh, this past spring, uh, the storm of tornadoes ripped through Nashville and, and it tragically took many, many lives. And, and it affected the city greatly as it tore down buildings. And one thing it also tore down was the scoreboard with my grandfather's name. Now, again, it's, it's brick and mortar and it does not, it pales in comparison. It has no uh, equality with the loss of human life. But that all goes to show, even if, uh, even if, our work does last and we have a memento. If our name is on a scoreboard, won't it, won't it just all fall down and, and won't it all just be destroyed eventually? Even if we do make it to the next generation and, and have our stamp on the world, it just seems like it's gonna be pointless because a tornado is gonna come and tear the, down the very thing that we have left a mark on. When do you feel the strain of work? When do the words of, of the writer of Ecclesiastes say and resonate in your heart? The thing is it says, my work and my job and my toil, it's meaningless. I, there's no fulfillment. There's no meaning in it. It just keeps me busy as I twiddle my thumbs until I die. 
And every day, because of that macro truth, the micro truth of every day doesn't, doesn't matter. When have you asked questions of your work to give you fulfillment and meaning, and all you hear is the hollow sound of the sobering fact that we're going to die? The the macro view informs the micro view. Now, so far, this passage is is a wet blanket, right? It's not very exciting to hear. And thankfully, uh, there's a turn, there's a shift. There's there's, uh, the way that the writer evolves as he doesn't just talk about how things are so bad and meaningless and hevel and smoke and vapor. He turns and actually talks about the purpose of work and actually kind of this silver lining. And we see it in in the second idea of of the story of work, the story of work. So the question should be asked, how do we find meaning in work? If the author says it's meaningless, how do we find meaning and discover and know that there's meaning in it? Many things that I hear from people is um, they have a job that meets uh, what they need in life, food, clothing, shelter. And maybe if you're lucky, you have insurance. Maybe if you're lucky, you have a 401k match. And maybe if you're lucky, you have a company car, right? We can go on and on about the benefits. But yet they say their job is something they loathe because it's void of meaning. And here, after he talks about meaningless, he actually frames work. The writer of Ecclesiastes frames work, and he says there's more to work. He says, starting in verses 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. For this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The preacher, the person talking in this, is saying, we can only rightly understand work when we give it to the one who has given it to us. We can only rightly have a place of work when we understand that actually the one who gives it meaning is the one who has given work to us. So so did humans invent work? No. It's not this rat race that we have invented so that we can get ahead and have this uh, self-beneficial element to it. Uh, Did humans, um, do they work simply because it brings stimulation? No. Because there's a danger when we um, say work is meaningful because it brings stimulation. Because sometimes work doesn't bring stimulation. All right? if, if work does bring stimulation, all we should do is just uh, play video games and, and eat sugar and, and, and do different things that offer stimulation. Because that offers meaning. Work is meaningful because the meaning is not dependent upon us. We don't define how our work is meaningful. We don't. The writer of Ecclesiastes is pointing out he's tried and tried and tried to find meaning. And finally he gives up and says, For apart from him, apart from God, who can eat 
and who can have enjoyment? He gets to this point where he's saying, I've tried to, to discover this new truth, and it's actually, I'm going to have to come back and say, I haven't discovered anything other than meaninglessness. And he says, I cannot determine the meaning of work. Because when we discover and know and come to know that work actually is given to us by God and has an inherent goodness, then we begin this uh, beautiful uh, understanding and cultivation of knowing how our work has meaning. That actually it was given to us before a sin entered the world. It was, it was this creational mandate that, that God gave us and said, this is a part of myself I'm sharing with you. You are to be a people who cultivate and subdue and bring beauty in the earth. So we have to point out, work is not a result of sin. The strain of work is, but work itself is not. So when we have a poor view of work, it really possibly could, and I would humbly invite you to, 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 to wrestle with, that our poor view of work may stem from a poor view of our, the kingdom that we're a part of. We follow King Jesus as he's our savior and he's renewing all things. But doesn't that stem also into the king's kingdom? Right, that, that we aren't just saved by a savior, but we're a part of his kingdom and we labor a part of his kingdom. And he says, your work matters because I am king of a kingdom that it fits into. If we don't know the story, uh, the tapestry of this world, then of course it doesn't make sense what we're doing. Of course we don't know how what we do for work nine to five taps into the greater story. Of course not. Uh, a, a woman named Amy, Amy Sherman puts categories to this. And she uses four words, the sequence of, of the history of the world. And she says, ought, is, can, will. In creation, the world was how it ought to be, right? God gave work to humanity, how, how they ought to live, this creational mandate, making things beautiful, sharing with God creation as creatures. And because uh, sin entered the world, it broke this peace, this shalom, this, this fullness, this wholeness, that it wasn't just, uh, sin didn't just affect our, our uh, vertical relationship with God. It was actually horizontal. Sin affected our relationship with ourself and with others and with creation. And sin actually affects our work. That actually we feel the thorns of the rose bushes more than we see and know the beauty of the roses. And... As we know and come to understand the comprehensiveness of the fall, then we can come to know the comprehensiveness of the can. That is, what the world can be because Christ has come. The comprehensiveness of the beauty of redemption is seen in what Christ can do, what, it, what the world can be. How we are both vertically made correct with God our salvation comes, but also the renewal of all things come. Ourselves, others, creation. And then lastly, what will be, right? The kingdom uh, came with Jesus and he says it's, it's here, but also it's going to come in fullness. It's going to be beautiful, a world without restraints, 
So the world uh, ought to be good because God made it good. The world is broken because of sin. The world can be good because of what Christ has come and done. And the world will be good because Christ will have the final word. We find meaning in our work when we begin to tap it in to the tapestry of what God is up to in the world. The, the, the grand story of the trajectory of this world. Our work doesn't just vanish when we die, like the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. But actually, he's admitting and, and coming to the realization of, my work has meaning when I begin to understand that God is up to something and my work actually taps in and is a part of that something. It matters. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and one of the points that he makes is he says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The rightful king has come back and is taking back what is ought to be because it will be beautiful. It will. Work is not a result of the fall. It's actually the design that God has for us. And that's where we can only begin to discover meaning in it. So where have we called work bad when in fact it's good? Right? Where have we said work is lousy, work is meaningless, when in fact God says it was a part of creation before sin ever entered the world? But, but also, where do we need to recognize there are thorns, there is a thwartedness of work, there is a result of brokenness of work. The shalom is broken of work, right? Where do we need to recognize that there are weeds amongst the beautiful grass? That there are splinters from the wood grain? Where do we need to recognize that our work is good and there are parts of our work actually that will be made new and right and won't have to do with our world because of what Jesus has come to do? When we search for meaning, we need to give our work back to God and say, because you gave this to me as a gift, where do you find meaning in it? What do you say about this vocation of mine? Where is there meaning in it? So if that's the story of work, right? There's this grand narrative of what God's up to in the world. And because God's up to something, we can tap into that story and know that we're not just here alone trying to discover meaning but actually we can tap into the one who's really going to do something about it. If that's the case, how do we right now recognize the beauty of work? And that's the last point. How do we discover beauty in work? Now, um, you would probably call and recognize that ministry is probably good work, right? I would hope so. You're welcome to tell me if it's not. Well, all ears. You'd probably recognize that nonprofits, are, they, they're, that's good work. It's beautiful work. You probably recognize that um, and, and affirm that, as we've seen in the past couple months, that healthcare workers uh, do good work at right, the front lines, that they're meaningful vocations. But what about when we get in the world of business? 
or accounting or engineers or construction or, or manufacturing, right? When we get into the more uh, maybe muddied waters, right? How is that really good work? How do we find a beauty in it? In our particular field, how do we know it's beautiful? In our particular job and vocation, how do we know it's good? How? In order to do so, in order to really f- understand the fact that there is a great tapestry and how do we tap into it, we have to have and cultivate a, what we call a redemptive edge, a redemptive understanding of our work. And one person defined this, this idea of redemptive edge by saying that it's the rare and, and somewhat elusive quality that we think is summed up by the phrase, creative restoration through sacrifice. Creative restoration through sacrifice. That's what beauty is found in, in our work. So let's unpack that for, uh, for this, these final few moments. What is creative beauty through sacrifice? And it's this, that, that we are to, to offer creative restoration. That we need to make the world as it was. We need to restore it and do so in a creative manner. Not, not just a rigid, calculated manner, but in a way that we see beauty before it comes to pass. We see what things could be because we saw and know what the world ought to be. And we actually know what the world will be, right? right? Genesis, what ought to be, and Revelation, what the world will be, are things that give us bearings in our compass of knowing what is beautiful. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, the subtitle is Connecting Your Work to God's Plan for the World. He says, um, like Genesis 1 and 2, He says, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, that is what God did in creation. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we celebrate and unfold creation beyond where it is when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. Christians are to be about the work of Jesus, and Jesus is about the work of creative restoration. He sees the way things will be, and he does it in a restorative, creative manner. What's the beauty in journalism? You use words and pictures to tell stories, and and it's really beautiful when you begin to tell stories of the people who have such a little to no voice at all. And guess what? Jesus is in the business of that, of giving a voice to the people who have little to none and speaking for them and telling their story. What's the beauty in busing tables? And it's that uh, you, you have such high regard and dignity for the people who will sit at those chairs that you clean up the mess that is there only to set a table and prepare a table for the people who will come in and enjoy a meal. And it's not this uh, rinse and repeat, you gotta do it again and, and make sure all the things are cleaned up. It's that actually it's beautiful because you say these people are endowed with dignity 
but I will go and clean and prepare a table for them. And is that not what Jesus does for us? Those who trust in him and know him know that our, our, our world is being prepared into something that's so beautiful as a table for us. Right, what's beautiful about reading spreadsheets on quarterly reports? Because surely there's nothing beautiful in that. How do you find your redemptive edge in that? And it's that you come to understand and see and analyze because of how you're gifted, how the world works and what the world needs and how you can really take a number that's on a spreadsheet and know that it's more than just a number and more than just a profit dividend and margin, but actually it's a person. And you begin to examine how people work. And is that not how Jesus works? He knows how we work. And we're more than just a number. We are a person endowed with dignity. We are in the work of creative restoration because that's the work that Jesus is in. But also we bear the image of God. And because of that, it's not just about creative restoration, but it's through sacrifice. Right? We sacrifice that, that our, our faith is not just... Um, beautiful and blossoming in, uh, in all the hours of the day except nine to five. But actually, when we begin to see nine to five as a beautiful chance to cultivate sacrifice, then it will just flood into everything else. Will it not? But nine to five is not separated and quarantined from the faith that we hold. But actually, it's beautifully discovered. The redemptive edge is beautifully discovered in each of your vocations when you begin to see that it can and will and has to have elements of sacrifice in it. That our work is not just about us, but actually it's for others. And is that not the work that Jesus is in the business of? That his work is not about him, it's actually all for others. It's, it's endowed and undoubtedly all for others, that there's a sacrificial ethic to his work and therefore we should have a sacrificial ethic to our work. That the person next to us on our desk, our coworker, has dignity and beauty and worth. And the person we have a transaction with has dignity and beauty and worth. There is the ability to have a redemptive edge in every single field, every single vocation and job. Why? Because of a creative restoration that takes place through the avenue and ethic of sacrifice. If Christ can bring beautiful restoration through a bloodied cross, and if he is ruling and reigning, then surely you and I can find out how he is at work in our nine to fives. We love through our work because Christ loved us even before his work of creation. We restore with our work because uh, Christ has restored us with his work. We sacrifice with our work because Christ's work is never without sacrifice. Christ brings a fulfillment that says to our work and says to our nine to fives, there's meaning in it because I am in it. Uh, I'll end with this story, but there's a, a, 
a short story uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of, of Lord of the Rings. It's entitled uh, Leaf by Niggle. And Niggle is this painter, and Niggle is focused on this grand picture that only he can see in his head of a beautiful tree. And uh, he's a neighbor to someone named Parrish, and Parrish is a lame person. He can't walk. And Parrish, this lame person, has a, a sick wife. And as uh, Niggle is getting ready to paint this single branch, and this branch, and this leaf, and this leaf, and this beautiful tree, he's always interrupted. And he's always helping his lame neighbor fix his roof. He's always helping his uh, neighbor's wife by going and fetching medicine for her. He's always being pulled away from the work, and he's always trying to get back to his work, to accomplish something, because he, he sees this, and he wants to make it happen. He wants to make it happen. And finally he dies, and he goes, and he sees far off in the distance, after he's died, this beautiful tree. And he sees this one leaf, the only thing that he got done of that beautiful tree is one leaf. And he realizes this small leaf is a part of the beautiful tree. And then even as he was pulled away and sacrificed, there was still the beauty of creativity. That his small leaf and this beautiful tree all were in the new heavens and the new earth, right? All in the idea that it lasted. In Revelation, it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. The kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. The only way we can have meaning is when we begin to look at our work and say, it doesn't belong to me, and I'm not assigned with the duty of putting meaning to it. But actually, when we give our work back to the one who's given it to us, and we say to God, what would you have of this? And what are you up to in this? We begin to have this redemptive edge of creatively restoring and sacrifice. We'll begin to know that's when our nine to five jobs that may provide uh, food, clothing, and shelter, and, and other things, begins to tap into the grand tapestry of what God is up to with this world. That's when our work has uh, meaning and matters. Because Christ is up to something. And though the thorns may feel comprehensive, there is so much more beauty in the comprehensiveness of what can be because of Christ and what will be because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you have not left us alone to make sense of the Rubik's Cube of this world. All right, we don't have to do it all ourselves. We don't have to find meaning for our work. We don't have to accomplish something to get to you. We don't have to accomplish something to find contentment like Harold Abrams wrestled with. But actually, when we know that our work matters not just to us, but even more so to you because you gave it to us in the first place, because it's a part of your creation, 
we begin to understand that uh, our work has more meaning than we can give it. Because you as the author of work, as the author of, of laboring, say to us, it doesn't matter what you produce. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. But actually, I'm extending an invitation to you to join me on this project and trajectory of reclaiming what ought to be of this world. And because it will be, just as the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Jesus, show us how our work matters today so that we may bring beauty as you are in the business of bringing beauty. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.